Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. That will be our text this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. If you can turn there in your Bible. Um, as we continue part seven of our series through Galatians, Jesus plus nothing is everything. We've heard of this group of teachers as we've gone through the book of Galatians, as Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. There is a group of teachers called the Judaizers. And as far as I can tell, they are right in their desire to be heirs of Abraham. They understand the scripture that much. They understand the scripture that to have the blessing of God, that we must be heirs of Abraham. They got that right. What they're struggling with to understand and what they're falsely proclaiming is, is how do we receive the inheritance? How do we receive the blessing of God? How do sinful people receive the blessing of a holy God? They are right to desire to be heirs of Abraham, but Abraham's offspring are not by birth and not by circumcision, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And they've missed that. They've even claimed that the apostles in Jerusalem are proclaiming that, but Paul's already said, look, I've gone to Jerusalem. I've asked the apostles. They've added nothing to the gospel. It is Christ and it is Christ alone. It's not Christ plus the law. It's not Christ plus circumcision to be Abraham's offspring. It's by faith alone. I think their desire is, is not bad in the sense that they desire a right relationship with God. That's a wonderful thing, but... They miss it. We must come to God on his terms, not on our own terms, or adding to faith, because if we miss Christ, we miss everything. You've perhaps heard this quote before. There's, it's an unknown source. I'm not sure where it originated. I'm not sure if anybody knows where it originated, but perhaps you've heard this before, that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Have you heard that before? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. In the churches in Galatia, a group of people called the Judaizers think they have good intentions to honor the law of the Lord. And they think that they are honoring and what they are teaching, but they're absolutely missing it. And what the Bible says is if anyone, even Paul, angels, anyone preaches a gospel other than the gospel of Christ alone, let them be accursed. Let them be Damned to hell. Because it is keeping people from faith in Jesus Christ to preach anything but Christ and Christ alone. Now these folks weren't like the group that Paul had previously been a part of. The ones that killed Christians. These folks were of the conviction that keeping the law was still binding on Christians, Jew and Gentile alike. Particularly Christ plus circumcision. That's a noble desire. It's good intentions to honor the law. But it began with a false premise. That the purpose and scope of the law, of what the purpose and scope of the law is. They've missed the purpose of the law. And in doing so, with this noble desire, they've actually put themselves in a position where Paul says, let them be accursed. Now, this is quite a call for us today, isn't it? That all of our good intentions, all of our noble desires to be part of a conservative moral religion has no eternal value if you believe that doing certain things is the grounds of your salvation. Did you hear that? Noble desire to honor the Lord, but if you believe that that's the grounds of your salvation, 
as these Judaizers were preaching, you must keep the law of Moses. You must in order to be saved. The road of hell is paved with good intentions and perhaps good moral people who are trying to live a good moral life. But if you're preaching Christ plus anything else, you're missing it. Some of you remember this in the 80s and 90s. It's the classic evangelism explosion question, isn't it? Who, who got trained in EE? We have some folks back here. There are several folks. That was a way to share the gospel with folks in your neighborhood going door to door often. And there's the opening question. Why should a holy God let you into his heaven? I've asked that question before. And you would be surprised what people say, even people in the church a long time. Why should a holy God let you into his heaven, let you into his presence. You would not believe the number of people, old and young alike, church and unchurched alike, that will say, it is because I. Maybe good things, moral things, because I've lived a good moral life, and they proclaim that as the grounds for why they're accepted before God. If you proclaim anything but Christ, he is our only hope, only plea, even a good thing like the law of the Lord, keeping that in order to earn favor with God, you've missed it. Paul is giving the good news, the gospel relief, that it's Jesus and only Jesus were saved on a promise not based on our performance. The promise was made, he said last week, to the offspring, singular. The promise was made to Christ. And it's only by being in Christ that we are accepted by the Father. Christ Jesus is the beneficiary of the promises of God, so we must be in Christ in order to be saved. And maybe you're, you're pressing with this question, okay, Judaizers, okay, people at, at Riverside and, and River Ridge, then why was the law given? If we don't need it in order to be saved, we can't say the law is a bad thing. God gave it, right? The law is a good thing. And God gave the law in the Old Testament. And so here these Judaizers are are trying to honor the Lord by keeping this law. But in doing so, they miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why then was the law added? And that's what Paul wants to answer for the Judaizers and perhaps us this morning. Then why the law? Why the law? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? He gives a resounding no. Verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Is it something different than the promise that was given to Abraham? No, it's not contrary to that. Why the law? Is it an alternative way of salvation? Were the people in the Old Testament saved one way and the people in the New Testament saved another way? No. Scripture tells us that. Paul said, Galatians 3, 6, we're all Abraham's offspring by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, let the Bible interpret the Bible. By faith, all of these folks of the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 says it, by faith they believed in the promise that was to come. It's always been by faith. So this is not saying that there's a gospel for the Greek and there's a gospel for the Jew, one's through law keeping, one's through faith alone. It's not contrary. It's not a different gospel, but there's a bit of untangling to do, isn't there? So why then the law? I want to untangle something up front real quick. Look at verses 23 through 25. This really perplexed me this week. Probably spent the most time on this. Look at verse 23. So, so, so why then the gospel? I mean, why then the law? That's what the question that he's answering. Now before faith came, I had a lot of trouble with that verse this week. I'm going to give you an honest, honest, honest to goodness. Before faith came, 
He's just spent three and a half chapters saying it's always been by faith. And now the dude is going to throw this in here. Before faith came, there was a time before faith where people saved another way that we were held captive under the law. So, so you can see like the Judaizers are like, I don't get this. Why the law? Imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. We're going to talk about more of that in a moment. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, so I'm thinking like before faith, now that faith has come, has there been a time without faith? We know to let Scripture interpret Scripture that Paul has already said in Galatians 3, 6, that Abraham was saved by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, saints of the Old Testament, saved by faith. Galatians three nineteen. look at this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And so what Paul is telling us before faith came, he wasn't saying that there was a time that you were saved by the law and now that you were saved by faith. He's saying that now that the offspring has come, now that the offspring has come, now that has Christ has come in verse 19, And so then if you look at verse 23, follow along with me here. Now before faith came, now before Christ came, now before the offspring came, but now verse 25, now that Christ has come, faith in Christ has come, now we are no longer under the guardian. I think John Calvin in his commentary on Galatians says that Paul uses, gives some clarity for us here. Here's what he says. That Paul uses the term faith in Galatians 3.23 and 3.25 to denote the full revelation of those things. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ, which during the darkest, the darkness of the shadows of the law were dimly seen. Old Testament, Old Covenant saints trusted in God's promises, but they did not see as plainly all the grace and benefits in Christ we are privileged to enjoy in the new covenant. Paul can refer to the coming of Christ as the coming of faith because the faith present in the hearts of old covenant believers as compared to the new covenant saints was dimly informed. Calvin also offers this creative analogy. The old covenant saints started out their journey under the very first crack of dawn. We in the new covenant start out under the bright noonday. So we say we are blessed now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, now that the shadows, the types and shadows of the law have been cast away by the coming of the light of Christ. We now more clearly see what the promises of God were in the Old Testament, that they were fulfilled when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son most clearly in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying as he opens up, why then the law? He's not saying that the law is added as a way of salvation, an alternative way of salvation. It's not a different way of salvation, an alternative way. He is saying, verse 19, that because of transgressions, because of sin, talk about what more that means in a moment, the law was added for a moment, a particular time in redemptive history. The law, here's what he's saying, 
The law was meant for the waiting, but the waiting is now over for faith has come for Christ has come. In summary, the law was not added to give life for it could never give life. The law was added because of transgressions. The law was added to show us our sin so that what was promised might be given to those who believe. The law does not oppose the promise of salvation by grace through Christ, but supports it by pointing us to our need for it. The law does its work to lead us towards our recognition of our need for salvation by grace. Until Christ had come and the fullness of time could come And God would display his grace in Christ alone. Casting away the shadows of the promises of Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, and so on. Until we could see it more fully in the bright noonday of the coming of Christ. So, why the law? Not because it's an alternative to faith. At all. Really listening to the law. It continually emphasizes that we need a righteousness and a power and a love for God that is beyond ourselves and is beyond the law. We need salvation by grace. The Judaizers are missing it. They think they're honoring God by keeping the law, particularly keeping circumcision. And Paul's saying, you're missing it. You're cheapening grace by saying that you contribute to your salvation in some way, shape, or form. So why then the law? The law because of transgressions, because of sin. To, that before the promised one could come, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It's not an alternative way. It came through Moses, but it's from the same God, not annulling the promises of God. So what then is the purpose of the law? How does the law carry this out? Here's what Paul goes into next. So, so we know the purpose of the law. To show our need of sin, to show our sin, to curb our sin, to show us that we need salvation by grace till Christ would come. So we know that. So, So how does the law then accomplish that purpose? Paul gives us two ways. What is the purpose of the law? How does the law accomplish its purposes as an intermediary waiting for the fullness of time in that particular moment in redemptive history? Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. You understand that by now. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's not the purpose of the law to give life. Verse 22. But the Scripture, the law, imprisoned everything under sin. So it gives us first analogy. The law keeps us imprisoned under sin so that... Not contrary to the promise, but so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive. So we see see that first analogy, right? It imprisoned us. It left us captive. That's one and the same. We're talking about a prison here or a prison guard. We're held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be Revealed. So the first way that the law accomplishes this purpose 
is that the law imprisons us. It shows us that we are prisoners to sin. This is the purpose of the law. It shows us that we don't just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power, requiring rescue. Requiring is what I'm trying to say. Rescue. That we need someone to set us free. That we can't break out of the prison ourselves. That we are confronted with the law of God. We are confronted with a holy God and we realize that we sin against the holy God and we deserve eternal hell because we've sinned against an eternal God and we realize that no matter how hard we try in our own power, we can't keep the law of God perfectly. And the law showed us that, that God requires holiness and we are not holy. If we are going to be set free from this prison of sin, we need a gracious God to swing the doors wide open and let us out himself. That's what the law was showing. The law had no life. It showed us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And the only way that we could be raised if he would come and bear our punishment. Be cursed on the tree, Paul said last week. Pay the penalty of our sin. Pay the death sentence that we deserved. Imprisoned in sin to set us free. The law was not contrary to faith. It left us longing for the coming of faith. Not that they weren't saved by faith, but for the fullness of time to come that we might be set free by the one in whom the promises were made, namely Jesus Christ. The Judaizers were preaching a different gospel because they were adding to this, perhaps trying to honor God with keeping the law, but that's not what the law was meant to do. The law imprisoned us, did not give us life, and the law made us feel and see that we were helpless, realize that we were sinners, imprisoned and helpless, and needed to be freed by something other than our own power. So, to stay under the law, Judaizers... To continue to try to earn your salvation through law-keeping, religious folks, is to remain in prison and under the law. You're not free if you're still trying to earn God's favor through law-keeping. What's the other way that the law accomplishes its purpose? One that imprisons us. It's like a prison. Verse 24, he goes to a second analogy here. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So one law's prison. Maybe you could think salvation by works is a prison. Number two, law is a tutor. Now, now what does this word mean? You, you perhaps know what a tutor is in our own day and time. You might see them at Starbucks or PJs or after school helping a student out to figure out chemistry or math or trigonometry or something like this. And they get paid a fee in order to help a student learn something. The word guardian that we see here in the scripture in Galatians 3.24 translates from the Greek. I get help with this. I don't know the Greek, but I'm told was an important role in ancient education. A family, listen to this, appointed a guardian to supervise a child from about the age of six through his teenage years. 
I would love to have a tutor for my kids. Like a built-in babysitter. Is that what it is? I don't know. No, not quite. The guardian took the child to his lessons, disciplined the child when he went astray, reviewed school lessons with the child in a similar manner. The law, by teaching us our sin and warning us of judgment, is what brings us to Christ, from whom we receive the words of eternal life. Martin Luther writes in his commentary on Galatians, the law is a specialist to bring us to Christ. And the law shows our way through substitutionary atonement. It shows us that we fall short, and it shows us through the sacrificial system that the only way is by the shedding of blood, by someone dying in our place in order for us, becoming the curse for us, taking the brunt of our sin, taking the penalty of our sin, taking death for us, that we might go into the presence of God. It left us longing for freedom. It taught us to look for that, to look for salvation by grace, salvation by substitution. It left us longing for Christ. And so the second metaphor, the tutor, shows us the law's true purpose is, yes, it condemns us and imprisons us, but it's instructive. It teaches us. It points beyond itself, just as the tutor seeks to prepare child the children for lives as adults and as free persons. The tutor is instructing us. Here's, here's freedom. It's almost like we need that law written on our hearts. So God promises to do in the new covenant by his spirit, writing the law on our, our hearts. The law imprisons, but the law is instructive. It's, a, it's in tutor instructing us how to honor God with our lives, showing us that we can't in our own power and instructs us that we need someone to stand in our place, to bear the brunt of our sin so that we might live and tell the story that we've been redeemed. The law, as a tutor and a prison guard, reveals the character of God, that God is holy. The law reveals our nature, that we are prisoners of sin, we're children of wrath, with sin controlling us, confusing us, dominating us, and deceiving us, that is, before Christ. Sin robbing us of life, and every detail of our lives is infected by sin and our relationship with the Holy God. That's what it says to us in the, the cleansing ceremonies, the eating ceremonies, the sacrificial ceremonies. All the law is telling us that we need to be completely clean in order to enjoy a relationship with God, and we are not. And it's only against one writer says, the dark sky of sin and judgment, that the gospel shines forth, that we need the bad news. So I've heard one pastor says, what makes the good news so good is that the bad news is so bad, that we need to get lost before we can get saved. Maybe that's somewhere where you are this morning. God has to show you the depth of your depravity to say, I need Christ and Christ alone. They were preaching another gospel. The law curbs sin and exposes sin. The law is similar to the promise, or at least consistent with the promise, being that they both look forward. The promise was looking forward to Christ. The law was looking forward to Christ. The law given through Moses was not meant to terminate on itself, and it wasn't given in hopes that righteousness and life could be gained through the law. The law was looking forward until Christ would come and that we would be set free. 
the Judaizers wanted to go back to prison. Back to the tutor. And it's not time for that. Verse 25. But now, faith has come. Christ has come. The offspring that you waited for, the promised one, has come. And we are no longer under a guardian, for Christ has come and fulfilled the law. Christ has come as the perfect fulfillment of the law. Sacrificial system gone, for Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Christ has come. You are no longer under the guardian. Why do you try to go back to the garden? You are free. You're out from under the tutor, meant to run free and enjoy the glories of Christ. You're no longer under a guardian. So what about the law now? Judaizers, people who are trying to earn their salvation by works. You're no longer under, for, for faith has come, Christ has come. Verse 26, look at it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, not that baptism saves us, But the Bible says that we go under a spirit baptism. When we trust in Christ, we're baptized by the Spirit. And we proclaim that through water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save. We're saved as the Spirit baptizes us. But we are commanded to proclaim that through the waters of baptism. I'm pointing back there because that's the baptistry, you understand, if you haven't been here a while. That's where we put the water. For as many of you who are baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then, not by keeping the law, if you are Christ, the true beneficiary, the true offspring, the one to which the law pointed, not contrary to the promises, but pointing you to the need for the promise. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul is proclaiming to us this morning, yes, the law is good. The law was given by God. It's not contrary to promise. But then enter Christ. Enter Christ that God is just. The punishment for law keeping, for, I mean, the punishment for law breaking has fallen upon them. He is the just. He has taken the punishment for our sins. And look, behold Christ, the justifier. The punishment falls on him for us. And in Christ you are justified. You were made right before God, not by law-keeping, and we receive his righteousness by faith alone. That's it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, he is our life, not the law. We are no longer under the law, but now we are in the Spirit. We are under Christ, for faith in Christ has come. Now, the law is not bad. As we saw above, the law was our supervisor until we found Christ and was thus like a guardian over a child until he or she reaches maturity. But draw out the analogy a little farther. Is it the design of child rearing that when the child grows to maturity, he or she then casts off all the values of the parent or guardian and lives in a totally different way? No. Now we are obeying not in order to earn our favor. We are obeying out of gratitude for what God has done. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't throw out the law in the sense that we no longer live ways that are pleasing to the Lord. So Paul is indicating that we are no longer, not that we no longer have any relation to the values of God's law, but that we no longer view the law as a system of salvation. 
It's not forced obedience through coercion and fear. The gospel means that we no longer obey the Lord out of fear of rejection and hope of salvation by performance. We obey in a way that honors him because he loved us and he gave himself for us. The law shows us who we really are. The law points us to see Christ as he really is, our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. The law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love. It shows us how to show our love and grateful obedience to him. It doesn't earn the favor of the Lord. It instructs us how we are to live lives that are living sacrifices, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to him. But we are no longer under the law. We are led by the Spirit. Romans 5, 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The law cannot give life because we cannot keep the law. The law was never intended to give life. But we are now in Christ. And if we are in Christ, let's look at these final few things. If you are in Christ, then you are sons of God. Listen to the promise. It's not the law keepers. It's the one who trusts in my faith. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, here's the gospel application that Paul gives us then you are sons. This is not a status that we try to earn or can earn and hope to attain. We are sons by faith, by grace alone. If we are sons, we are rightful heirs to the promise. We're rightful heirs to eternal life based on the work of Christ. What he has earned, we receive by faith. The righteousness that he has earned, he imputes, he gives to us by grace. If we are in Christ, then we are sons because Jesus is the one true son, the only one with the right to be called such, the only one who has pleased the Father. And the Bible says that all who receive him, all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That's glorious. That's glorious. If you've been baptized into Christ, then you are sons of God. If you are in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. This becomes our primary identity, that we are in Christ. This is what now defines us. So Paul says here, so put on Christ. Dress yourself properly. Put on Christ. You've been identified with Christ. You find your identity in Christ. That's where your primary identity comes from. So seek to imitate Christ and put on Christ. Show Christ with everything that you are. Show his grace with everything that you do. Show his grace with every way that you live. You are sons, so therefore put on Christ. So now, verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male, no female, for you are all one in in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not a proof text that there are no gender distinctions, mind you. This is not what this is saying. It's not saying that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave nor free. This is not what Paul is saying. He's saying that in Christ, if we are in Christ, here's the implication for Riverside Church, for this community, that our primary identification is that we are unified in Christ. And that's what now identifies us. 
not by works, but Christ alone is what we proclaim. That the good news of the gospel creates gospel unity. The privileges that we get in the gospel, we get to be his sons and daughters. We receive his spirit. We are declared righteous. We are one with Christ. We get to put on Christ. They are so glorious that they surpass every earthly identification that we might have. That no matter who we are, we look at our brothers and sisters and say, we are one in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. No matter where you've came from, no matter what your past is, if you are in Christ, we are unified in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel creates gospel unity. As recipients of grace, we know that our blessings come unearned. So that our pride and race and status and gender is all removed. We know that we are sinners like everyone else. And there's no reason for us to think of ourselves better than or to exclude others because we're all sinners adopted by grace. This would be a compelling community to the world, would it not? Culture barriers broke down. Jew and Greek. Judaizers are trying to divide. Greeks, you must become like Jews. Jew or Greek, barrier down. Class barriers, slave or free, down. Gender barriers, down. Let me be clear, I do believe that God has given certain roles to women and certain roles to men. We can talk about that in another sermon. But what he's saying is that's no longer primary. The primary thing is that we're all in Christ. Here's what he's saying. End here, Christ is lifted high. Anything else that we're lifting high is not worth it. Even if it's a good thing like the law, good thing like morality, what we want to lift high is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel application is this. The gospel changes us. It changes our relationships. It changes our culture. And if we get the gospel wrong, we will be left in prison, left under a tutor. But as it is, we are free in Christ. And we want to proclaim the freedom that is in Christ to this community and beyond. So brothers and sisters, why the law? to show us that we need a Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come. You are no longer under the law. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's rejoice in the freedom that Christ has given us. Let's pray. Father.